Greetings, Rare Ones, and welcome to the Rare Birds Emerging Markets Podcast. I am your host, Joanne A. Hamilton. This show is an exploration of the problems and solutions, ideas and concepts, growth and development, nuance and complexity behind emerging market startup ecosystems. Each season, I share unique conversations filled with stories from early stage founders, ecosystem builders, investors, and innovators from the front lines of global change and innovation. You will gain fresh perspective and insights, as well as learn from those on the ground who are creating the shifts and driving the action. The Rare Birds Emerging Markets Podcast is a part of the Rare Birds family of podcasts. You can find all our podcasts, TV, magazine, and additional resources by visiting our platform at www.rarebirdshq.com. The Rare Birds platform is on a mission to share the ingenuity occurring across emerging markets, one story at a time. We're here to help you as you journey along the ever-changing environment in emerging markets. We're not in the Rwanda kind of where, you know, the, everything has ended and, you know, you are, you're moving to places. Somalia is still in the transition from a failed state to a proper government. Even though the small brands will never compete in price, what we've been seeing is that uh, they can compete on, on story. And for us, what we do, we're storytellers. You know, it's also the kind of tea that you're making and the kind of name that you've kind of created in the market uh, which is uh, which you kind of value with all your heart and soul you just say you know let's change africa or a solution for africa or, or something like that because i'm um, it's really just just dopamine driven conversation uh, mm-hmm. it just doesn't really make sense to talk about a solution for africa because africa, africa is not really there is no one solution that works for us right now um we believe that the robotic arm especially is the type of robot that can help solve many problems, not only in one sector, but in different sectors around the continent at the same time. It can be a big problem for the market. And sometimes in these markets too, you know, scaling doesn't happen overnight. It takes, you don't build an application over a year or two, you are scaled to like maybe a, a 600,000 or 1 million customers. It doesn't happen that way. It really takes a while. People are people really are carefully spending their the few dollars they have. Greetings, Miller, and welcome to the Rare Birds Emerging Markets Podcast. Thank you so much to having me today, Jana. It's a great pleasure yeah. to meet you. Yeah, absolutely. I am so excited to speak with you. I'm always excited to speak with everybody, but I'm like super excited to speak with you because of this product you're building. I think it's so absolutely fascinating. And just generally, I'm excited about this series because I've always wanted to speak to um, startups from this part of the world. I mean, outside of India, Pakistan, you know, like the, the more lesser known countries. And I have actually a good friend from Sri Lanka that introduced me to female entrepreneurs, but I just generally wanted to know about the ecosystem. So I'm so grateful that you're sharing your time and expertise and startup journey with us today, Miller. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So Miller, let's dive in. I know that you come from an agricultural background. I think I read or saw somewhere that you're like fifth generation, 
agro like farmer is that correct in your family uh, exactly johanna it's it, it's very common for uh, south indian uh, countries to have your parents are farmers like uh, so almost 100% it was farmers uh, maybe 60 years back now it's like around 25 to 30% of the population is still dependent on farming so obviously i'm a fifth generation farmer Right. So in Sri Lanka, that's very common is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, cool. So tell us a little bit, just give us a bit of your professional profile before you got into um, your business. I know you studied computer science, but like, tell us, how did you get from graduating from uni to where you are now? Can you fill that sure. gap? Yeah, definitely. So, um, so agriculture was the closest thing. So just like uh, 63 percentage of other second generation or third generation farmers in Sri Lanka. Um, I also forced to use choose some other options uh, rather than agriculture because it's not profitable, it's not producing <clears throat> optimum. So um, I chose computer science, computer science uh, as principal major. Um, and for four years, uh, I was studied in Jaffna, so where the war zone of Sri Lanka for 40 years of civil war. Um, so that's where I met my friends and uh, during that time it was pretty much like competitions and seeing things outside a little bit always a little bit of outside of uh, what we supposed to do in computer science nerds but uh, it gives plenty of exposure volunteering for various things since it was a war affected and straight after the war I was just getting into the university uh, I'm getting in uh, in 2010 so the war ended in 2009 so a lot of things to do on the ground, so which gives a huge exposure, um, what to do, what to choose uh, going after uni and yeah, here we are. So doing something that we move closer to. Yeah, I can't wait for you to start talking about Sens Agro. It's such a cool company. Um, uh, Miller, like I told you, you're the first person that I have on the podcast from Sri Lanka. So for my listeners who don't know anything about Sri Lanka outside of it being, you know, south of, of the, the Indian um, continent, like subcontinent, would you like to just generally share some background about Sri Lanka? It could be political, economic, a little bit of everything, and maybe a little bit about the entrepreneurial ecosystem, just so they can get an idea of like the landscape in the country. Definitely, definitely. Uh, so uh, Sri Lanka is known for two things, tea and tourism. So uh, it's a fantastic, beautiful country. Uh, it's called uh, the paradise of tropical islands. Um, so we were just below India. It's a small dot compared to India. Um, but the thing is, it has all sort of natural resources. Uh, we have mountain, waterfalls, um, beaches, and so much of uh, natural resources. So uh, even in TripAdvisor and all, you can find Sri Lanka. Usually that's where you find out Sri Lanka. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful tourist country and we're known for the premium quality tea and cinnamon. Um, so th those are the main economical and um, and economic drives of the country. Um, the startup ecosystem is so vibrant very, very recently. It's a very uh, recent emerging market. So what happens usually if your country is um, good at something, everyone tries to do the same thing. So tourism, tea, uh, plantations, that's where people are working on. But startup ecosystem, especially tech startup ecosystem, just booming up uh, because 
we replicate many things from India. So Indian startup ecosystem started to boom like 20 years ago. And Sri Lankan startup ecosystem just adapted and grasped it. From 2010 onwards, Sri Lanka also has this boom. Uh, like uh, everyone wants to be an entrepreneur at the moment. So uh, it was just uh, in the corporate level, the startup ecosystem picking up like uh, corporate people who are working on IT sector or any other in industry think about creating their own company. Now it was on school levels even, just bypassing the universities and all. Um, the competitions are just more towards startup related pitching competition, competitions compared to um, any other hackathons or anything. It's purely uh, people talking about creating their own entity and so on. And that's what a country need also, because uh, we were known for the third important part of uh, 40 years of civil war, uh, uh, internal uh, war we had, uh, Tamil and similar people in between. Uh, uh, it happens in the Northern part of Sri Lanka. So it was a large proportion, close to 40% of the land space uh, and the population was disconnected from the rest of the country for 40 years. And for one decade, it was just opened up and the innovations and everything is picked up. So around 2016 to 2018, Sri Lanka was one of the fastest growing country in the world. And people started pouring money in, including the Ruthfeld, um, uh, child uh, investments and Gates Melinda Foundation and so much of investment coming in. Um, but suddenly series of events happened, the Easter bombing and uh, the COVID pandemic, and now we are in a financial crisis. Um, so all those things just backed up the growth, but I believe it will be uh, a short term, but be to going towards a startup build uh, value addition built country compared to a raw material producing country uh, at what we are at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and I, we, we briefly talked about the country's financial crisis right now, which you said is related to debt, right? Debt owed to China? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Most, it was pulled out by three parties. <laughs> I would say like uh, the northern part is mostly very close to India. It's on the Indian border, just like the Russian-Ukraine war, what's happening right now. So mm. for the safety purposes, India holds the ground on the northern part of Sri Lanka. Um, south and the capital pretty much owned by um, financial debt from China and uh, for plenty of resources. And uh, Sri Lanka was in a fantastic place. It was the split middle in between the East and the West. Mm. So, and with so many natural arbors where you can place your shipment and do fueling and all. Um, so it was known for this location, geographical location for a very long time. Um, so for that, IMF and plenty of uh, global entities also take a part of it. So it was pulled out three sides. So people in between, they completely no clue what they're supposed to support or to be part of. So they're in a very bad situation at the moment because it's a developing country. So daily wage is very, very low. Um, so everything on people's taxes at the moment. So to give you a small glimpse, uh, it's clear up everything. So. Four weeks ago, uh, per dollar conversion for Sri Lankan rupees is 200. Mm. Today it's uh, 280. Mm. So the inflation was dramatic. So um, that's that's the biggest issue. But I believe it will be short term uh, with a little bit of funding and kickoff. It will be shaken up. Yeah. Well, 
we can hope for the best. But in the meantime, we have people like yourself. You know, one of the reasons I started doing this podcast is because, you know, I studied, I I minored in international relations in university. And it it was so focused on government and government solving everybody's problems. And, the you know, these Bretton Woods institutions, the UN, the IMF, the World Bank, it was all about that, right? And like most students, I fell into that trap of, yes, you know, the World Bank and the IMF are going to save the world, (laughs) you know? And I left university and got into the real world and started traveling and you meet people from all over the world when you do, you know, international relations and so on. And I was like, wait, this is not working. And I remember being introduced to this concept of, uh, back then it was like, um, what they used to call these things, NGOs. And I was like, okay, yeah. but that's, they don't work either, you know, because they're always begging for money. They're always broke. And then this concept of entrepreneurship for doing good started to become more popular. And just through research and reading and, you know, traveling the world and talking to people living in different countries, I realized the private sector, particularly the founders, are going to do more for transforming their countries than the government. Definitely. And I mean, I say this, I live in China where government plays a big role, but and that's a separate conversation, but not every country is China, right? And yeah. I just I just think that entrepreneurs are major engines for transformation in emerging market countries. Definitely. Because the government is not just, it, it's not going to happen. They've had how many years, <laughs> right? And, you know, so like I, you know, this is such a, a, a good uh, point in the conversation for me to say this is where people like you come into play because you're on the backdrop of all of these crazy things happening around you but you're building this business which is having impact and it's the first it's the first of its kind so you're like a first exactly. mover in the country so please tell us the journey i know you started like was it three years ago or something like that so tell us yeah how it, it was and all that stuff it's kind of an interesting story, Jana. Like, um, so to touch upon something from the previous part. Um, so while I'm studying in university, I was volunteering for an organization called YAL IT Hub. So it basically means the IT Hub of uh, YAL. YAL means the northern part of Sri Lanka. Okay. So where the war happened. So this was like a completely a volunteer-driven um, NGO which tried, tried to rebuild the country from ash to a Silicon Valley. So their vision was bring the second Silicon Valley um, in Jaffna, makes Jaffna the second Silicon Valley. So because it was completely destroyed um, during the war, the last three, four days was hectic. So it was almost uh, ash. Um, so we're rebuilding from agriculture or industrialization is not possible. So building something out of the knowledge base, that's the only possible solution. So they build a knowledge base of IT entrepreneurs. So from schools, universities, and so on. Now they create more than 50 plus startups out of uh, YAL IDF itself. And these startups supporting global entrepreneurship and hiring more than 500,000 employees uh, at this particular point of time. So through that only i get this exposure to entrepreneurship and all in 2013 around i was like second year in university so um what happened was 
that time just after the war we had like two hours or three hours electricity uh in daytime sometime in midnight time so it's since like 70 percentage of the population is dependent on agriculture in those part of the world those part of the country so everyone's supposed to switch on their irrigation pumps and uh the to irrigate their farmland but the biggest barrier was the land is still not um cleared up it has landmines so that was the biggest issue where farmers can't go in night switch on their motors this is from the war sorry to interject exactly this is from the war right okay and there was like a 40 year civil war you said 40 or? years of civil war and okay. the entire region like northern province was filled with landmines and like um plenty of ngos worked out but there are still there are plenty of things to be picked out um so so that's the reason we started a small gadget where my friends are from uh, the electronics and telecommunication engineering so those guys build a small gadget where you can send an sms that can switch on a motor and you can schedule it whenever the power comes in so that's all we did it just switching on a motor and we, we like it or not people get together and we become the first crowdfunded company so they invest on this particular switching on a motor that's all Mm. um so people get together and invested and we don't know what to do we invest entire money on developing a product and we bankrupted within six months because uh the technology was so expensive what we built the first pcb the electronic board board we manufactured what uh, was printed in canada so that took us uh the entire investment um and within six months we get to know the farmers could pay only less than five dollars a month um, that's all they're earning so if we put five dollars you can think about like how much it reached uh fifteen thousand dollars so um but what we invested on the technology so it was completely a no way uh we can implement something uh, we came back to colombo the capital and uh, started to working on different verticals pivot the business model and all it took three years to find the product market fit on agriculture uh, and farmers from Sri Lanka could adopt smart farming from a motor switching um, switching on device. Now it sends agris pretty much like a agriculture ecosystem for the entire world of smallholders. So it has so much of features. And we, as you said, we uh, registered the company in 2018 with so much of pivots. And uh, now since agro, I mean, convert more than 7,000 farmers rural farmers who don't who never use a smartphone now they all smart farmers who you're doing agriculture with smartphones that's what the achievement we think uh, we made in these three years during pandemic where you can't meet farmers and you can't travel at, at all but still farmers adaptation rate was very high so i think that was because of the need which is supposed to serve on the country because they never produce optimum so uh, that's why Sensagro started. It was started seven years back, but mm -hmm. pivot and a failure and a four years of time period it took to bring the product market fit. And now we are uh, working on a successful company, which is operating in five different countries at the moment. Okay. So, wow, five different countries. So very quickly, which outside of Sri Lanka, where else are yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Um, we are in India at the moment um, and Australia, Japan, Ecuador, and Middle East. 
Wow. You said the Middle East, countries in the Middle East? In Dubai. In oh, Dubai. Dubai. Excellent. So this is where we we would find your companies using or governments using your product, your irrigation system that you created? Yeah. So how it works, um, basically, it's a precision agriculture platform. So okay. this is one of the super affordable precision agriculture platform, a full-fledged platform. Uh, we provide the hardware, the AI, crop-specific intelligence, and so on. So what farmers basically do in the smallholder agriculture ecosystem, so there are two different segments of farmers in the world. One is Western part of the world. Um, if you see farming in US or Canada, in Australia or somewhere, they, they basically use a monoculture for one stretch of a large farm of 100 or 200 acres so whatever they do it's all the treatment it could be irrigation or fertigation it's uniform but okay. there's a huge farmer base of 500 million farmers of smallholders who own less than five acres of land space so for them adapting a technology it's something a dream because imagine if a farmer own an 100 acre land space and he do some farming Purchasing a John Deere machine may be worth of $1 million. It's kind of okay because it break down to, if you break down per acre, the price point is completely okay because it's $1 million breaking to 100 and it's compensatable when the enough investment comes in. But imagine a farmer owns less than five acre, bring the exact same technology, it's not possible at all. So smallholder ecosystem works differently. They own less but they work as a team, they work as a cluster. So they some, produce some equal amount of production, but so much of human involvement happens compared to the Western part because of the, their wage is less, mm -hmm. they consider that as a human effort. So more people, same production, but individually US make the same production. But what the important part here, building a technology which can be adapted by the smallholder and it's still the cutting edge compared to what US or Netherlands using on the same scenario. So we use a precision agriculture technology which measure parameter plants requirement real time through sensor technologies, weather conditions, rainfall, microclimate, what happened below the soil, irrigation requirement, fertigation requirements and so on. And we automate the entire irrigation or fertigation process, even ventilation if it's on greenhouse, um, to provide uh, human error free, always on the right condition. You maintain your farm. Basically, we say like upload your farm to cloud and manage. So we make sure the farmers are managing uh, remotely and it's working always on the benchmark conditions to produce the optimum. So that's, we try to bring it affordable as possible. We work on different business models to bring it on. Mm -hmm. And uh, now Sensagro is adapted by the farmers. So people know what is Sensagro, even though uh, there are huge number of farmers need to connect. In Sri Lanka, the people know what is Sensagro and it's, it's kind of become one of the mandate. If you are buying a irrigation pump, probably you can consider Sensagro also. That kind of wordings we try to bring it in right now. Yeah. Um... It's really interesting. I was checking out some of your um, your use case, well, your case studies on mm -hmm. on your website, and I was wondering if you could just uh, maybe yeah, give us yeah. a little bit. That would be really helpful, like so we could have like one case study where and how how your product was used, your platform rather was used. I know I saw strawberry cultivation and cucumber cultivation, coconuts. 
I saw some really interesting things on this <laughs> Yeah, definitely, John. Coconut would be very much interesting because yeah. we are not producing coconuts. That's uh, what we're working on. It's coconut toddy production. Toddy, okay. it's a coconut beverage, alcoholic beverage, um, very premium. So it, it's alcohol percentage is very high, close to 48 to 60 percentage when you dissolve it. So, um, but the important part, the nature of coconut uh, toddy production, if you pour more water to the tree, like irrigating more, you might get more yield, but you don't get the exact concentration what you're expecting. The concentration of alcohol percentage is very, very low if you put more water and it's diluted. If you put less water, that means less irrigation for the plant, then your production will be very low, but your concentration of alcohol percentage is kind of okay. Like it's very concentrated. So, but the important part, if you maintain the proper irrigation, you can get a uniform productivity at the same time, the premium quality what you're expecting. So, but if you think about a coconut plantation, it was kind of big considering to a small whole ecosystem, but you might have different soil condition, different varieties of soil, People managing it uniformly, managing the irrigation or irrigation uniformly throughout the farm, it's a hectic job. So we working with a company called Rockland, one of the uh, premium production company in Sri Lanka. So it was a hundred year old company. Uh, so this company basically provide us 18 acres of land space. We put six sensors uh, in interesting points where the soil look different and the porosity of the soil is different and we measure every 10 minutes what's happening below the soil, whether the plant has enough water and it's the best benchmark, not more, not less, exactly what the plant's supposed to have on that particular time period. And we have a sub subsurface drip irrigation, that means a drip irrigation setup which is go below the ground because uh, the evaporation will be almost zero. And we automate and open and close the valves according to the sensor parameters. So we make sure the plantation, it's throughout the day, 24-7, 365 days, it was on the exact right condition it's supposed to be. And the productivity improved by double. The number of trees they are tapping toddy per day, it's doubled. Um, and the quality was 100% on pitch perfect, what they ex exactly expected. So we started with a small 18 acres. Now we're working with the same company for 88 acres and we are covering more than 500 acres of coconut farm plantation at the moment alone in Sri Lanka. So, um, so differently, each crop has its own nature. Um, to give you another example, um, fruit productions, like fruits like uh, perennial crops, mango mm -hmm. or pomegranate or anything. Probably uh, agronomists might get to know about it called water trust management. Because um, if your plant has enough resources to grow, it just grow your leaf. It never put uh, fruits. That means if you have enough water, enough fertilizer, plants don't need to produce its next generation. I'm happy with what I am having. So I just grow myself and I can survive for a little more longer. That's what plants think. It's just a monocell uh, life form. So what water trust mean? We provide very less water. Um, so the plant think I'm going to die because I, I'm facing a drought right now. There is no water. I'm going to die. So I supposed to produce more fruit. That means more seeds to uh, create my next generation. So, but if you put 
more than a particular bar of water, the plant will die without water. If you put enough water, it won't produce fruit. So it's a, it's a thin line. You're supposed to manage your water exactly the right point. So we put sensors to understand what's the exact moisture conditions throughout the day. So we guide how much water you're supposed to pour. Even the surface might have completely bone dry, but if the deep root has water, we will manage in two different layers of uh, moisture conditions and provide exact amount of water to produce more than 20% improvement in yield. So those are the areas we're working on. Very sensitive environment to improve the productivity and quality. Uh, farmers do plenty of mistakes because of 3000 years of agriculture knowledge they have and the current mm -hmm. modern practices and the seed varieties, it's not matching. So we provide that, fill that gap and make sure that matching everything, uh, everything matched on right conditions. Right, right. Now you mentioned earlier that you have different sort of revenue or, or business models depending on, on who you're, you're dealing with. So can you tell us, are you, it sounds like you have a wide range of, of, of users of your product. Is it government? Yep. Is it large scale farmers, uh, family uh, farmers? Like who, who mainly or generally uses your, your products? Um, we, at the moment, we have two set of farmer groups. One, it's individuals. It's a very small percentage, uh, like individual modern farmers, they won't adapt it. But there is a mass percentage which coming from uh, supplier networks. So smallholder farmer network around the world, it works as a nucleus farming methodology. That means there will be a nuclear, a central source where farmer, all the suppliers sourcing to that particular entity. So we call it nucleus and clusters. So that's the exact model we worked on. It could be a farmer producer organization, FPO or an agribusiness which own a large supply network. So we serve the farmers through a B2B2F model, business to business to farmers. So, okay. but the interesting model, yeah, sorry, Johan. No, I was just saying, okay, I got it. Business to business to farmers. I was just wow. registering yeah, what exactly. you said in my mind. Okay. Right. So at a business, uh, the interesting part is the pricing structure. So. What we enable, uh, no other active company in the world enable that. So it's called 100% pay as you go, including for hardware. So mostly these precision agriculture companies around the world, they go for a capex plus a opex. So capitally, they have to pay for the hardware, then there's a service charge, it's getting on. But it's very complicated for a smallholder farmer where adapting a capex for unknown alien technology, which they never experienced. The awareness was very low. So what we introduce, it's a complete pay-as-you-go, including for hardware. So the return of investment calculation will be a farmer need to consider, I pay this guy this month, this much, whether I'm getting $1 extra for it. That's all the entire calculation is all about. They are not thinking about a, a ROI, which is like two and a half years or five rotations. No need to calculate like that. Uh, the second interesting point, even within that monthly payment mechanism, we use a uh, method of uh, only a crop rotation payment. That means, let's say you are growing something like a three and a half months to four months crop. So you only pay for the four month, not for the entire year. So we basically create a database of farmers within a particular area and we manage an inventory. So we know which farmer goes what crop at this particular moment and how long it will be carried out. So if it's a four month crop, so we provide the services for four months then we plug out the sensors and switch it to another farmer 
and different crop and the entire crop specific intelligence happening on the cloud side. So we change the crop and serve that farmer from that point onwards. So a farmer basically pay only for the crop rotation. If it's four months, only four months, not for the entire year. So that's how the entire farm adaptation works. So farmers accessing us international standard cutting edge technology for a very, very fraction of the price point compared to the, if you are purchasing it, it will be like more than 20 percentage, 20 times lesser price compared to normal uh, normal business model where farmers purchase the entire technology out. So that enable uh, how a smallholder could afford the exact same cutting edge technology. It doesn't mean that's cheap. It's affordable. It's not cheap. It's still premium, but it's affordable. Yeah, so you found a way to make it affordable, but at the same time exactly. be, be profitable. Because I mean, exactly. your what you've designed is it's not cheap at all. <laughs> exactly, know? it's not it's cheap at all. It's sophisticated technology. Exactly, it, it, it's it's uh, it's kind of cheap compared to the Israeli technology or Netherlands technology. But right. when we are shipping out to Australia or Middle East or kind of Dubai or Japan, we doing it on one one off payment. So CapEx purely. So if that's the case, the price point kind of two times lesser price compared to the Australian product or Netherlands product. But still, that is not affordable for a Sri Lankan or Indian or a Southeast Asian Myanmar farmer. So that's where this pricing structure comes in, where the pay as you go only for the rotation. So we just need to find partners to distribute it. That's it. Right. And 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 that's where all of these countries come into play because you get into Japan and then from there you can exactly. distribute, etc. How were you able to come up with this model? Was it like through your iterations? Because I know you you say you, it took some time before you, you got product market. Exactly. Oh, okay. I was gonna ask if it was that or research like on what other you know companies were doing around the world and you kind of said. This might work. It, it, it's impossible to do research with farmers. So okay. uh, the, okay. it, it, it's almost impossible because uh, running with a questionnaire and asking what would be the affordable price point, farmers don't have a single clue what is this technology <laughs> at all. Yeah. So, yeah. so <laughs> what we, it, it's purely the bankruptcy we faced and the additional four years that teach us what we're supposed to do on the ground. Right. So that's the learning curve. Right. Learn through failure and you just you figured yep. it out and you got it done. You know, something that the listeners should know is that you guys have gone all over the world and won yep. a lot of global competitions in Finland, um, other parts of Europe, um, in Asia. So this is it's quite a it's not just a Sri Lankan product. It's a global product. I think you went to Edinburgh at one point. So you, you've kind of gone around. Exactly. So what in the important part of sense agro since we are into the agriculture field and we improving the livelihood livelihood of a rural farmer community and we save huge amount of water at this particular moment we have say more than 500 million liters of water so because we know how many gallons of water distribution happen because we automate the entire irrigation so uh, compared to the normal scenario, we save more than 500 million gallons of water for the last two years time period. And the chemical reduction uh, in terms of fertilizer, we measure how much fertilizer you have to put it on and, uh, and give the exact amount of fertigation and we reduce huge amount of wastage 
and residue uh, contamination on the ground and water. So for this SDG related uh, goal achievements, we won plenty of international award on climate impact. Um, so happy to say I'm the current climate ambassador for World Bank Group as well. Um, yeah. So that took us plenty of places, uh, especially we went to Helsinki, it's a, a global impact award. So it's called Slush, uh, we won that in 2017. And before that, we went to Barcelona uh, for Mobile World Congress and four years from now. Um, then Climate Launchpad in Edinburgh. Um, last year, we were in India. Uh, so obviously, it's a virtual event because of COVID pandemic, but it's an Indian award from Startup India and World Resource Institute India. And in Turkey, we won SDGIA. And, uh, and it's continuing. Right now, we recent won um, it's the ICT for AG. Uh, it's part of Bayer's and uh, Bayer's uh, crop science. And we're we currently part of the Microsoft Amplifier also. It's in the, uh, currently operating in India. So it's plenty of uh, awards and recognitions purely because uh, the SDG sustainable development um, promotions and achievements that we do at the moment. Yeah, excellent. I mean, congratulations. Because <laughs> you only you only just started and the recognition mm -hmm. and the and the accolades are are huge. You know, um, you mentioned your role as the climate ambassador at the World Bank Group. Is that a the is that a network with all um entrepreneurs working on like agro or climate change, or is it like lots of different types of leaders, like from civil society, uh, from government, whatnot, or is it just entrepreneurs? Can you tell us? Uh, it's, uh, it's a combination, uh, mostly entrepreneurs are working on climate related or uh, global impact related environment, especially the SDG goal achievements. So there are 153 amb ambassadors around the world from 118 countries. Um, so, so these 153's job is to working on um, six different categories of areas, especially health, agriculture, gender equality, um, solid waste management, and the, the major six problems of this world in terms of the climate impact. So, um, basically, I'm part of the agriculture ecosystem and its damages and how to mitigate and kind of things. So, we uh, launch a position paper. So what we do, basically we um, do market studies and understand what are the major issues in each country um, and we represent. So we collect information with evidence, um, research papers and so on. Plus we are representing World Bank to uh, guide World Bank to where the next investment in terms of agriculture or uh, climate impact could be uh, achieved. So for an example, in Sri Lanka, we want uh, Sri Lanka have a huge World Bank uh, grant, uh, not a grant, it's pretty much like a micro loan mm. uh, of 140 million dollars uh, for implementing climate smart agriculture practices in Sri Lanka. So similarly, now our responsibility is to identify which country need what kind of support uh, in terms of climate impact uh, and the future predictions of the climate uh, crisis could happen on this kind of areas. So those type of research we have to do because we were spread around the world, 153 people. So uh, we collect info and we create reports and that will be submitted to the World Bank and they will be thinking, they will be planning for investment accordingly coming up years. So that's our job role would be. 
That's excellent. That's also a lot of uh, knowledge sharing and really, exactly. really supporting and steering the World Bank, I guess, in the right direction because they're often criticized for not always getting it right. So <laughs> if they can, if they can get insights from the people on uh, like yourself um, and just globally, that that really that really really has impact. So yeah, well done. That's brilliant. You know, something I noticed is that you guys are all young right yep. you're all young uh, i know your 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 um team is like farmers many of you third fourth fifth generation fa fa yep. families of farming and of course you you studied uh tech in university and then you have like you know some a few i guess more a little bit more older people maybe as like advisors or something but you're a young team yep. and you said at the beginning of the conversation that majority of of the uh, economy in Sri Lanka is based on agro. So here's what what I find really fascinating is you guys are young, but are you the norm? Because are the majority of young people in Sri Lanka, despite coming from generations of, of farming families, do they want to stay in farming or are they trying to go into other industries? Because I think it's, I don't know if it's a Sri Lankan thing or, but is it quite normal to have young people, a lot of young people involved in agro in your country? No, that, that's the biggest problem. We don't have farmers at the moment. So the young farmer group are going out of this exact industry, including myself. Mm. So there are 63% second generation don't choose agriculture as their career path at the moment. It's not attractive. It's not financially viable. Um, so I have spoke to more than 2,000, 3,000 farmers in the last two, three months. So these farmers, if I ask a question, always the answer was the same. Do you like to see your son or daughter in the agriculture field exactly what you are doing at the moment? The answer was 99.9 percentage is no. Mm. They don't want their kids on agriculture because they, are, they don't see the optimum production. They don't see the... Um, uh, the exact financial value. The biggest barrier, they they are not seeing, farmers are not seeing agriculture as a business. They see this as like an emotionally connect occupation. This is kind of a tradition they're supposed to do. Mm. Um, bookkeeping practice, for example. So every business has a bookkeeping practice, profit, losses, expenses, income. But 95% of Sri Lankan, at least Sri Lankan farmers, I believe this exact same scenario happens throughout smallholder farm ecosystem. Um, don't use bookkeeping practices. Even the people who just calculate or they're just drafting all the expenses and income in a book, but they never put their effort. They're spending 10 hours a day in a farm. They never put their effort into an expense, into a salary-based expense. They never consider that. I curiously asked this question, why you don't put the, your effort um, into the books and you put a labor's effort into the book but you don't put your effort into the book they simply said if i put my effort into the book the book shows negative that means book shows it's it's not a profit so the reality is whether you have money in your hand or whether you want to show your book record positive so farms don't realizing that so, so they don't see this as a business yet so there are so much of young farmers going out of this business because it's not attractive. It's not making real money. Um, and the, the, the sad part, uh, entire farmer group, close to 30% of the population in Sri Lanka, only support 7% of our GDP. Mm -hmm. So 
that was a disaster. So, because farmers, they're supposed to feed the country and 25, 30 people, farmers get together and feed only seven people in their network. So that was a, an unbearable equation. So economists and some expertise uh, in the country, they prefer Sri Lanka supposed to pivot and change the model of our industry. So the recommendation is very uh, logical because Sri Lanka, we try to compete with India and China and become a raw material producer. We are a very tiny country in terms of population and land mass. We can't be a raw material producer. Yeah. So whatever we produce, tea, rice or anything, it's completely raw material. The raw material goes to somewhere else, maybe to Malaysia or India, and coming back to Sri Lanka as an end product and we purchasing it on the higher price, yep. including yeah. rubber to tea and everything. The economists uh, in Sri Lanka, the, uh, the people who are, have some brain on working on, so those guys recommending Sri Lanka doing the wrong equation. We can't compete with India or China in terms of become a producer or become a raw material producer. So whatever we produce going out of the country and coming back as an end product, Sri Lanka is supposed to be a value addition company. So whatever we produce, it's supposed to see a mid-range or an end product range and putting a label onto it. And we're known for the premium, for premium cinnamon, premium coal, premium black pepper, uh, premium cocoa, premium of tea. So everything is premium. But the problem is we are not utilizing that brand name, what we are known for. So creating value addition and agropreneurs that make the change. So that's what we try to do. So we promoting agropreneurship and the promoting entrepreneurship amongst agriculture farmers, adapting new technology compared to their existing mechanism of working, which is 3000 year old. So the adaptation rate was so overwhelming at the moment because every single day we are getting at least 20 calls. They try to do something which their fathers or their neighbors never tried to even think about. So that's kind of a movement that we see, I believe in five years, it, Forget about Sense Agro, the agriculture adaptation for technology will be very big in Sri Lanka and the South Asian. Especially India, it's a $84 billion market acting alone. So it yeah. is a huge win we are expecting uh, in the South Asian uh, region going forward in agriculture technology. Yeah. So you are transforming an industry. You're transforming yeah. an industry and the image of an industry as well. And people in your country are seeing this very young team doing amazing things, getting accolades all over the world. So that's really good. That's really good. Changing people's perceptions of, of farming and, and you're just adding technology, basically. You're adding it's something new. Yeah to exactly. a very very old industry it's i wasn't surprised when you said um you said 99.9 percent .9 of farmers said nope we don't want our children in this industry <laughs> obviously they want them to go off and get degrees and work in banks exactly. and become you know solicitors and doctors every parent would say that right it's i think farming Definitely. is seen as a hard life yeah you've got a hard life you're out there but i guess because they they haven't really the mindset isn't big. They're not thinking, you know, how to scale, how to grow, how to improve. They're just doing, like you said, 3,000 years of, of what they've always done. So you're helping them to, to kind of shift into this era, which is really, really good. Okay.
Yeah. Okay. So final question for you. You you speak up. I've spoken a lot about your um, just your challenges and so on. So what lessons would you like to share from this journey that um, that you guys, you and your team, have been on since twenty eighteen with our listeners? Definitely. So more than twenty eighteen. I can say like from two thousand thirteen onwards. Yeah. So okay. um, this is all about. So the important part of being an entrepreneur, if you want to start something, just start it. That's it. So start it. And if you find a fail, fail fast, everyone talk about it, fail fast, fail cheap. But if there is a failure, don't feel shame, just chin up and back off. That's what we didn't do it in early days. And we learned that in a very hard way. Pivoting is one of the important part. People don't, people try to defend what their concept and idea, defending it means nothing. So you suppose, if you are, want to do something in any business, it could be tech or non-tech or anything, don't try to defend your argument against market or the consumer's requirement. Consumer is the king. And mm. if they say, this is the way I want it, go for it. So the question you asked, Johan, uh, already, like mm -hmm. uh, how you uh, took the product market fit. Yeah. We took it very hard way. It took four years and one failure and three engineers for 20 months, we earned nothing. We, for 20 months, we three engineers, I mean, top class engineers from Sri Lanka, we get zero rupees as salary. And it, it took a very hard journey for us because we were adamant to change and we were defending against investors, against farmers, against our direct consumers. But don't defend it, just evaluate it and see the only thing pivot is the key if it's necessary. So your consumers define not your business, you just coming with a concept, that's it. Yeah. So you come up with a solution, they will define what your business is. So just realize it, chin up and just go with the flow. That's how you can work. But start it today, if it's possible. Thank you so much, Miller. It was so you, nice to, to speak with you. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I wish you and your team all the best. I can't wait to see where you guys go in the next few years. Definitely, John. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's a great pleasure to talk to you. All this bunch of joy to talk yes. to. So thank you so much. Anyway, until next time, folks. Bye for now. If you enjoyed this conversation, visit the Rivers platform to learn and hear more from startups in emerging markets. Download our podcast episodes by visiting the website at www.rivershq.com or via iTunes, Spotify, Google, Anchor, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Join our growing global community of rare ones by subscribing to our newsletter on our website and visit our shop to purchase some rare gear for yourself or as a gift for your friends. Thanks again for listening in. And until next time, rare ones, bye for now.